Digital identity has become crucial to our ability to move easily in the world. After almost two years of restricting our movements to keep each other safe, soon moving freely and safely around the world will be all that closer with the introduction of digital COVID-19 vaccination passports. In this episode of Think Digital Futures, we look at how these vaccination passports might work, what security measures they'll need to consider, and how we can ensure accessibility and digital inclusion. I'm Sophie Ellis, and you're listening to Think Digital Futures. As vaccination rates across the country increase, we look towards reopening international borders. It's likely that in order to travel, Australians will have to prove their vaccination against COVID-19. The federal government has announced they've contracted international IT company Accenture to create a digital passenger declaration certificate. The federal tourism minister, Dan Tian, said the system will allow Australians to use MyGov to upload proof of vaccination to a QR code, which will be linked to their passport. Some states have also announced that they're looking to introduce vaccination passport systems of their own that would require people to prove their vaccination status to gain entry to pubs, restaurants and major events. Both these systems will likely rely on QR codes. But how will this actually work? So what will happen is there will be a database, central database stored somewhere where all of our uh, vaccination information like vaccine records and all will be stored. Our QR code will be very unique to us and that will have a pointer to our vaccination record. This is Manoranjan Mahanti. He is a lecturer in the School of Mathematical and Physical Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. His work focuses on cybersecurity, cybercrime and digital forensics. Manaranjan explains that the QR code system is capable of providing a secure way to carry our vaccination information, but database protection will be essential. So I think it's more of a concern for vaccination passport. That's because here we are talking about health information, right? So which is really critical. If I, let's say, go to a restaurant and I have been scanned for my vaccine record, that information can be used to know that I was in that particular restaurant at that particular moment, right? So anyone having access to the database uh, can know that, you know, if I visited, let's say, 10 different places, my vaccine passport was scanned 10 different places, then if you know that, like, uh, where I went scanned, then you can basically know which path I took, where I went, at what time, what probably I did there, right? Then the question is, who can access that particular central database? Well, government can access that. And more, uh, I mean, importantly, the hackers can also uh, hack the database potentially. So um, the protection of the database is a critical question that has to be addressed. Dr. Helen Paik is a senior lecturer at the School of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of New South Wales. For Helen, high-end security threats posed by hackers are less of a concern. She says it's about ensuring there are no loopholes for low-skill fraud. Now, obviously, there is what we call a high-end security concerns. The, the back-end system, all these big servers with databases, with all these records, securing them properly. But I'm sort of less worried about those high-end security. In the, in the other side of the um, scale... 
what we would call sort of easy loophole security um, software developers who are building this vaccine application or vaccine passport application really should be mindful of doing some basic sanity check, checking user input properly, um, checking it against the right name, right databases and things like that. The really sort of day-to-day end of the scale of security is really at the operation of these check-in processes. Machines are fine. We can probably build pretty sound and solid security into any system, but always the weakest links are the humans. So if you think of how this vaccine passport check-in might work in day-to-day level, it looks like what we will have to do is just show this vaccine passport on the phone to someone. So it'll be just eyeballed at the gate. So how would that work? Can someone sort of um, steal my screenshot of something and just uh, pass it um, as, as me? If our freedom of movement is going to uh, rely on having those vaccine passport in place, would um, people who are checking this um, vaccine passport at the gate be diligent enough to check every person properly? The development of both a national vaccination verification system to be linked to our passports and individual state-based systems for entry to venues raises questions about how these systems will work together. Katie Atwell is the director of the Vaccination Policy Lab at the University of Western Australia and a vaccination social scientist and policy expert. She says the challenge with having multiple systems will be the inevitable human errors in digital health data systems. The feds having their own is not a massive problem, I don't think, because they control the Australian Immunisation Register, which is the single source of truth for all of our vaccination data. So you want to prove you're vaccinated, it had better be on air, the Australian Immunisation Register, um, otherwise uh, that you've got a problem. So the Commonwealth will be able to play with air pretty nicely because it's their own instrument. Um, It'll just work across different departments. The greater level of complexity will be when state systems start playing with air, but from a perspective of what happens when there's a problem. So if my state is the one saying to me, Katie, if you're not, um, if you, if you're not showing up as fully vaccinated, um, you can't get into the local pub and have dinner. That's a state requirement. And I would rightly want to be able to go back to the state and say, well, hey, I am. And actually it's a Commonwealth database that is not showing my information correctly. And I was vaccinated. So the individual is then probably likely to be referred back to the Commonwealth to try and fix the problem. And we know that the Commonwealth have been struggling because so many people are being vaccinated. Wonderful humans are doing that work. Wonderful humans are entering the data. Humans do make errors. It's to be expected. What we want from our systems is that those errors get fixed up as quickly as possible so that the systems work for everybody. To add further complexity, not only will we have state-based versions and a national passport system, this national system will have to be compatible or at least recognised by other countries' systems. So I, I don't think particularly being able to check certain information about an individual at, at this scale is particularly a challenge. It's more this particular type of record, right? So because we were never asked to share this sort of information when we travel um, overseas or when we even go to you know our, our local shops. 
Um, that's why I say when you go overseas, um, your health record doesn't travel well with you <laughs> because it tends to be quite considered sensitive. If you're an Australian citizen, your health record will stay in Australia. It's, it's rarely shared across countries. How do you uh, make sure that the, the system that you design um, is properly considered for sharing this type of information? So how are other countries approaching a digital vaccination passport system? So Israel led the way with this. They were very quick to vaccinate their population. They do have a pretty small population of 6 million people. They have a pretty effective um, health system and they're pretty good at tech as well. They were the first ones to really do this and they introduced it and implemented it during their rollout to kind of get up to the levels that they wanted. And then when they got there, they withdrew it, which I think is a good show of faith to say, hey, like we only did this while we needed to. But then when Delta came on the scene, they brought it back. I think their decision to withdraw it and bring it back, they were both good decisions. It shows that they're able to be agile with the sort of um, epidemiological situation at the time. Italy and France have introduced their own versions of this much more recently. I think it will be challenging. Um, the, the, the content of the French one was also kind of crazy because one of the places you were going to have to be vaccinated to enter was a hospital. Again, I'm really not sure how that's playing out on the ground. But, um, and of course, I guess the negative COVID test is, is your opt out there as well. But I really don't know how that works in the case of somebody who's just had a heart attack or a stroke. And, you know, that's the kind of um, something that we, we need to understand more. Manaranjan Mahanti from UTS explains that international operability is not so much a technology challenge, but a political and legal one. I think technically the technology is there to make it global, the COVID passport. It's not, you know, rocket science, actually. So the main challenge, as I said, would be uh, the interoperability between different countries and the trust. Uh, One country may not trust on the other country that their passport is legitimate or not. In July this year, the EU announced it would not recognise India's locally produced Oxford vaccine COVID shield in its digital COVID certificate. The UK also announced just last week that vaccination certificates from India would not be recognised yet as the British government assesses how the Indian COVID vaccine app works, meaning travellers will still be required to quarantine. Another question looming large while Australia continues to develop its national and state-based vaccination passports is accessibility and digital inclusion. If we are required to prove our vaccination status digitally, experts say there has to be consideration of how the less digitally connected among us will participate. Using phones and digitizing everything is great. It's, we could we could have wider access to services, and we can have more. We can live more convenient life in general, for sure. But there are people who might be left behind because of this um, change. Government could consider some more offline physical card or physical um, certificate. I could think of say something like Medicare card. At the moment, it's just basic piece of plastic with your name and Medicare number on it. Something could be considered that um, this vaccination information is encoded on the card so you don't have to have a phone to, you know, go and drink your coffee at the local cafe. I, I imagine my mother-in-law, my own mother, of course they can use, operate the phone, but <laughs> this is, again, another new thing they have to learn and I'm not sure how comfortable they would be. 
you know, having to present this information everywhere they go. New South Wales Customer Service Minister Victor Dominello advised that those who don't have a smartphone or online access should contact the Australian Immunisation Register for a printed version of the vaccine certificate. Katie Atwell from the University of Western Australia says that the risk of fraud with physical copies is much higher. There absolutely needs to be a mechanism for people who don't have a smartphone um, because it is a it is a free choice not to have one. But, you know, paper-based versions of things, then uh, the risk of fraud can increase. Uh, but my real concerns would be around equity, fairness and safety for uh, communities that can't easily engage with tech or with English. I did a focus group recently as part of my team's coronavax work with culturally and linguistically diverse women from um, quite uh diverse context, but, you know, people who've come here with very little English, some of them are refugees, um, and, you know, they I just realised how siloed they are from the rest of us and how difficult our systems are for them to navigate. I would want it to be extremely easy for those people to go about their lives. They do not need another level of hassle. As we know, we are living in a multicultural society where uh, some people m- might have the language issues, English language issues, but that's why there, there are translators available for critical services, right? Then are we going to provide uh, an alternative? So instead of mobile phone where the app will be there, we can, let's say that, okay, you can just print the passport and bring it, uh, which essentially means that the QR code will be there. And they can simply hand over to the business houses and they can scan that, right? So some countries are doing that. The inclusion of those who are unvaccinated, vaccine-hesitant or unable to get the vaccine for medical reasons will be another challenge. A a venue full of vaccinated people is inherently safer for everybody in that venue, including anybody in there who might have a medical reason not to be vaccinated, than a venue that has um, unvaccinated people in it. So it kind of translates directly to public safety in that regard. Other reason that they might be good policy, although of course this can also be contentious, is simply as a lever to push more people over the line who are either hesitant or who have not managed to get the vaccine yet or who have not been motivated to get round to it yet. So it's a way of um, sticking a bit of a firecracker under those people um, and the prospect of not being able to go out or the prospect of being able to go out if you're in New South Wales or Victoria is um, obviously an incentive across the population to go and get vaccinated. Katie says an opt-out method to the digital vaccination certificate via proof of a negative COVID test may be something we see emerge. Generally, in other jurisdictions that have introduced these policies, they include an opt-out for those people, and that is that you have to demonstrate a recent negative COVID test, either to get into the venue or to get a temporary passport that then gets you into the venue. You know, you you can imagine that it's quite a barrier, and that's kind of the point of these opt-outs. It's easier to get vaccinated. Most people would therefore do that. But the committed refusers would have this other option, at least um, that's what's been done in other jurisdictions overseas. Like both Manoranjan Mahanti and Helen Paik explain, the digitisation of identity information is not new, nor is the technology to share this information. Wide-scale sharing of sensitive information like our health records, though a necessary and helpful development, does raise awareness to the need for greater digital privacy protections. 
I mean, when we say security or privacy or security, we tend to sort of mix these two together. Data breach and things like that is more security issues. When we say privacy, it's a bit more than protecting our own data. I would say privacy is more concerned with how much control do I have about the data about myself. Let's just check, have this check-in application as an example. Whenever we check in, obviously we're sharing our movement, our location data. This goes straight to the government. And this kind of information is something that we never asked to share. And this was supposed to be a temporary measure. We already see an example of misuse of this data. I'm sure you've heard of the news a couple of weeks ago. You know, some uh, police departments in different states wanting to access this check-in data for assaulting crime. It may be for good good purpose, but obviously when I press button to check in to places, I didn't consent for that data to be used for crime solving. Um, I think there has to be a bit more care around designing systems that could still afford some level of control to um, our everyday citizens um, in terms of what, what I can share. The New South Wales government has amended their service New South Wales COVID check-in app so that you will be able to control the amount of information you share about your vaccination status. A green tick with vaccinated will appear and information like your full name, date of birth can be hidden. Helen describes this as selective disclosure and says it's an important consideration for this technology. Katie Atwell says the digital vaccination passport journey is one of adaptation and it should give us a sense of gratefulness for the strong legacy of vaccination data Australia has built. I think agility is an enormous strength. Um, Unfortunately, I think there's a bit of a trade-off. So if we think about even just in, in terms of our electronic register, um, we are so lucky to have an electronic register in this country for, for all of its failings. It's, we've got the oldest one in the world and now suddenly this vaccine is going on there and it's incredibly important that it does. So the problem with having our really old clunky system is it doesn't have great functionality. It captures Aboriginality, doesn't capture much else in the way of demographic characteristics, which are important to know so that we know the kinds of people that are vaccinated and unvaccinated in our population. So if you were designing a system from scratch, you would design, you know, a system that could do more, uh, but then you might not have a system that was ready in time. Being able to change things quickly is, is so important because COVID changes everything so quickly. Oh my God, what a whirlwind it has been the last year and a half. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sophie Ellis. Thanks for your company.